This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Toxic masculinity. When you hear it, you're either thinking it's a good way of describing negative behaviour and attitudes in boys and men, or you think it's a woke culture term, you don't like it at all. Well, whatever you think of it, the term that is, the government's decided it wants to address it. So what are they doing? Well, later we're going to get into this project that's been announced to develop more positive masculinity. We don't know too much about what it's going to look like, but we're going to speak to someone who's an expert in this area. Also coming up, you're going to hear why people are protesting in Western Australia to shut down a notorious prison unit. First, though. Hack. There's breaking news out of Lewiston, Maine, about 40 minutes north of Portland. We're learning details about what officials are calling a mass casualty event. NBC News can confirm 22 dead in this shooting in Lewiston, Maine, and 55 to 60 people injured. On Triple J. Another mass shooting in the United States. Will they ever stop? The news out today was so disturbing. Residents in the city of Lewiston in Maine told to stay home that there was a gunman on the loose, armed and dangerous. More than 20 people are thought to be dead, dozens more injured after a man opened fire at a bowling alley and a bar. We've seen video of people running to escape, including kids. So what do we know and when will these mass shootings stop? Jennifer Massia is an American writer, a journalist who's covered gun violence extensively for a lot of news outlets, including the New York Times. She's one of the founders of a website called The Trace, and it's a non-profit newsroom that looks at America's gun violence crisis exclusively. Jennifer, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. In a country with so many mass shootings, this one is horrific, it's brutal, but is it surprising? No, as a matter of fact, my internal spidey sense was going off. In this country, we usually have a catastrophic mass shooting once every few months, and it's been about a few months since we've had one. So I've been kind of waiting and watching um, in fear that it was going to happen again. And of course, here we are. I mean, we have had 31 mass gun murders so far this year. That's four or more people killed in a single incident. If you're looking at just four or more people shot, we'd have 565 mass shootings so far this year in the United States. Could you imagine any other country where that is true? It's extraordinary. And especially in a country like Australia, there'll be so many people listening now who can't fathom that scale of violence. Do we know much about what has happened? I know the details are still coming in, but do we have a bit of an idea? We do. We have a person of interest. His name is Robert Card. He's reportedly 40 years old, a trained firearms instructor in the Army Reserve, who was experiencing mental health issues and committed to a psychiatric facility for two weeks this summer. That's from law enforcement. So, you know, if you've been committed involuntarily to a psychiatric facility here, you are not allowed to have guns. However, the police don't come to your house and take your guns. They just say you're not allowed to have guns. Maine is a very permissive state when it comes to gun laws. So he could have easily been disqualified and the authorities never came to collect his guns. 
Um, you can carry a gun in public without a permit or training in Maine. It's one of 27 states in the U.S. where you can do that. There's no universal background checks. So if you buy a gun through a dealer or a retailer, they have to give you a background check. But in Maine, it's one of 29 states where it's legal to just buy a gun from a friend. No background check and no record. And this is why other countries look at us and they say, what are you doing over there? Because this would be unheard of to anyone in Australia or any country in Europe, I'm assuming. So can you tell us about Maine specifically? In that state, are shootings common? Because it seems like the gun laws are very relaxed. How common are the shootings? That's the interesting thing about Maine. Maine has only had four mass shootings in the last decade. It's very sparsely populated. It's all the way at the top of the northeast of the country, bordering Canada. It has very permissive gun laws. But it's also surrounded by a lot of states with strong gun laws. A lot of the states in the Northeast, Massachusetts, um, you have to get a license to carry a gun. So there's, you know, some gun reform advocates think that having those states nearby is kind of a buffer for Maine. Because if you have a bunch of states with loose gun laws, then all the states around them, it's easy to get guns. There's a lot of shootings. Maine is very interesting. It's one of only a few states where there's a lot of guns. But it's sparsely populated and there's not a lot of shootings, which is why this is very surprising, especially something with this death toll. This is the deadliest shooting Maine has ever had. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with journalist Jennifer Massia, who covers gun violence in the US, about this latest mass shooting that we've seen in the state of Maine. More than 20 people confirmed dead. Jennifer, what do you expect to happen in the days and weeks ahead? We're going to see lawmakers call for thoughts and prayers, and we're going to see them say it's too soon to talk about politics and policy. And maybe on the state level, some lawmakers in Maine at their legislature will introduce some bills to tighten gun laws, but they probably won't go anywhere. It's a Republican-led state, and in a couple of months, a new shooting will take its place. Lawmakers suffer no consequences in Republican-led states for not passing gun laws. In Democrat-led states like California and New York, the more liberal states, they have strong gun laws and their voters expect them to pass strong gun laws. But in red states like Texas, um, in the South, there's no consequences. So you have these lawmakers who loosen gun laws. They go in the other direction and they take all the gun laws away. And there's still no consequence because their voters are gun owners who are super Republican and they're going to keep voting for those candidates unless those lawmakers are in fear of losing their jobs. They're not going to pass stronger gun laws. And it's not even that the gun lobby is paying them, although there are political contributions involved. It's more like this is a litmus test for conservatism. A gun vote, a pro-gun vote, is a definite Republican vote. So you know you've got the gun owners. So they cater to that base so they can get in office. It's quite corrupt, really, but it's not even about money. It's about power. So do you have any hope that there will be meaningful change in this area in the years ahead? No, I think that federal gun laws are a done deal. 
Uh, we passed a modified package last year in Congress that incentivized passing new laws with grants and funding, but left it voluntary for the most part. So states could say, no, we're not making our gun laws stronger. The only progress that's happening is at the state level, but unfortunately it's politically divided. So unfortunately we don't have a cohesive gun policy in this country. Jennifer, can you tell us a bit more about the trace and why you set it up? Mm-hmm. Yes, well I was uh, I had been covering gun violence at the New York Times for a year and a half and you know some funders came forward and said we think that this is a big enough problem that there should be a news outlet covering this all the time. And that was 10 years ago. And as you can see, sadly, the need for this nonprofit news site is more than ever. We have two dozen staffers covering gun violence all over the country and there's so much gun violence and so many related issues that it's not enough. We could have double the staff and still not be able to cover the whole problem. In other countries, my job doesn't exist. But in this country, it's more vital than ever. Look, it's so horrible to hear this. And unfortunately, nothing changes. We've covered this so many times, these huge shootings in the US, and still we're having the same conversations. But we appreciate your insight into it. You're doing so much good work in this area. Journalist Jennifer Massia from The Trace, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And you can find more of Jennifer's work on the Trace website. It's thetrace.org. You can go there, read a lot of really insightful articles about gun violence in the US. Someone on the text line says, I hate to say this, but I really am starting to lose hope for America. At what point do we stop uh, reporting on this and realise that the country needs to help itself? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one. Hack. But I just want answers. What happened to Cleveland? Justice. On Triple J. You might have seen some news about big protests in Western Australia about a prison that's housing young people. And there are actually calls for this youth section of the prison, it's called Unit 18, to be shut down. Earlier this month, a 16-year-old was found unresponsive after he attempted to take his own life while he was in Unit 18. It's a maximum security centre. Now his family are demanding answers. Joe Lauder's got more, and just a warning, there's some strong language in this. It's really hard. That table is not going to be his base no more. There's one person not here today, and it's Cleveland. We're here for him. We want answers, and we want it before we go home. Glenda Mippy is one of the grandmothers of 16-year-old Cleveland Dodd. Cleveland died last week, a week after he tried to take his own life inside a controversial youth detention centre in Perth. He contacted prison officers through an intercom one night and when they went to his cell, they found he was unresponsive and they tried to resuscitate him. He died a week later in hospital, surrounded by his family. This is his other grandmother. Bringing a kid from the bush into a city. They, they walked him in that prison. They carried him out on a stretcher. He never even made it out of hospital. He'd be coming out of there in a coffin. Cleveland was being held in Unit 18. It's an isolated facility within a maximum security adult prison. It was set up last year as a temporary place to detain young offenders who the state considered too difficult to manage at the youth detention centre. Since then, there's been at least 20 attempted suicides and 350 incidents of self-harm within the centre. There should never be a too hard basket to fill. We want to see it closed down because it took out... Our grandson's life. Look at his family all here. He misses him. He should be here with them. 
Cleveland's lawyers had written to officials asking for him to be taken out of Unit 18 because they were worried about him with the conditions in there. Locked up for 23 hours a fucking day. Sorry for swearing, but 23 hours a day locked up. I bet you they don't even do that to their animals. Even animals don't get treated like that. But the WA Minister in charge of Corrective Services is holding off on shutting the centre down just yet. Unit 18 is not where I want it to be and I'm focused on making it better. This is the first recorded youth death in custody in WA and there's already investigations into what happened as well as a coronial inquest. The Commissioner of Corrective Services has also been replaced and a prison office has been suspended. The WA opposition doesn't think it's enough. We've changed the Commissioner. Uh, Mike Reynolds is the sacrificial lamb. He's the scapegoat for the Labor government and um, doesn't remotely surprise me this litany of failures. Today, the ABC's revealed that key Indigenous figures wrote to the state's Premier just months ago, asking for more say in youth justice reforms. But the offer was rejected. This is systematic abuse of children within a state institution. The Commonwealth have a role in relation to this. Green Senator Dorinda Cox is calling on the federal government to intervene here. She's also met with the WA Minister over Cleveland's death. What I'm asking for is for the government to stop with the inhumane uh, treatment of these children within Bankshire Hill and within Unit 18 at Kajarina Prison and to start thinking about utilising the facilities in a therapeutic way. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that story. And if it has raised any issues for you, remember Lifeline is always there. You can get them on 13 11 14. Hack. We've always learnt to be self-sufficient if a disaster happened, but I wasn't prepared for this one. On Triple J. Yeah, we were warned about a bad bushfire season and everything that we're seeing so far makes that seem almost certain. It's only spring, but already thousands of hectares of land have burned, dozens of homes have been destroyed... There are hundreds of people in evacuation centres and people have died as well. Right now, serious bushfires burning in southern Queensland. Some locals are saying they're the worst to hit the area in decades. And unfortunately, we are being warned that things are only going to get worse with El Nino weather conditions ramping up into summer. April McLennan's got more. Heaps of smoke, black and white and grey. So we knew a structure was going up. Grabbing her eight dogs and two cats, Darlene Lord fled her home because of out-of-control bushfires that were burning in southern Queensland. Yeah, I'm worried about the place today because of the wind direction. It's going to change and it's going to get worse. It's going to be a bad one. The winds get up as high as they say. We've got sheep and we've got chickens. Over the past few days, bushland's been blackened by multiple fires that have torn through the Tara and Milmerran regions in southern Queensland. One man died on Tuesday while he was trying to protect his property in Tara. And a woman died yesterday after suffering a cardiac arrest. At least 16 properties have been destroyed. One of those homes belongs to Jasmine Monkman. It was devastating. I mean, we were visiting my grandparents around the corner and we got the phone call to state that our property was on fire. Jasmine rushed home, but by the time she got there, it was too late. There was just nothing we could do. Everything was alight. We just had to sit back and watch everything with the building, let hardcore go up in smoke, unfortunately. Jasmine and her family only moved to the area about six months ago. 
and now they've been forced to seek refuge in an evacuation centre. Well, the Lions Club's been helping out with uh, feeding everyone that's here. We've had a few more families come in last night. The Toowoomba Regional Council's been here around the clock just trying to provide support for Betty and making sure everyone's comfortable and getting as much support as possible to get things in place for people that are devastated and obviously going through a lot. There's currently fires burning in most states and territories as the country prepares for a summer of hot and dry conditions. It's caused by the El Nino weather pattern. We're already seeing some of this severe heat and these conditions are making it tough for firefighting efforts. Queensland's Rural Fire Service Regional Manager Wayne Walterspuel says at times their crews on the ground have been overwhelmed. The ferocity of these fires has meant in many occasions we have to stand back and watch the fire take a run. And Wayne reckons this is just the latest blaze in what's already been a long fire season. Oh, this would be one of the worst fire seasons that we've had for many, many years. It even really started early in January and it's moved right through into the summer months again. So it's a, it's a long, continuous uh, fire season that we don't often see. For Darlene, she's also worried about what the conditions could mean for the months ahead. It's harsh country out here, very harsh. You know, and the city folk come out here and they don't realise how harsh it is. You know, we haven't had decent rain basically for 12 months. We've had a few showers and that's it. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there with that update. We're going to have more updates for you in the months ahead, I'm sure, as fires continue in all parts of the country. Remember, if you are in an area that's affected by a bushfire, it's a good idea to tune into your local ABC radio station. Also, follow your fire authorities as well on socials for emergency updates because they have those all the time. All right, time to move on. Hack. I'm not denying toxic masculinity exists, but I don't think that it's the only form of masculinity. On Triple J. It's called the silent pandemic that nobody wants to talk about. Violence against women and children. On average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. We know almost 40% of women have experienced violence since the age of 15. And the reality is men are more commonly the perpetrators of physical violence, sexual harassment and sexual violence. There's a lot of talk about what's contributing to that. And one thing you might hear is toxic masculinity. And then the influences of people like Andrew Tate, who are so popular online with boys and young men. The government has come out and said that it wants to do something about it. And it's announced a plan and a bit of money to counter toxic masculinity. It says it's going to be a program to help young men develop positive masculinity. We don't know too much about the details, but it means boys as young as five would be taught about healthy relationships. The trial would start next year and work in uh, all different areas, in schools, in sporting clubs as well. Do we think it's going to work? Well, let's speak to someone who knows a lot about this area. Hunter Johnson is the CEO of The Man Cave, which works with boys, teenagers to promote healthy masculinity. He's with us now. G'day, Hunter. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me, mate. What, what do you think about this trial that's been announced by the government? I mean, we don't know all the details, but we know it'll be about pushing positive role models for young guys on social media, at school and sporting clubs. What's your thought when you, when you read it? 
Well, I think it couldn't come at a more potent time if we look at the news that's dominating Sydney's uh, papers in particular this morning about uh, Lily, you know, who has had a very tragic circumstance from someone who, um, you know, is allegedly on the run or something, you know, more serious has happened for, for his own uh, health. It, it's a really uh, poignant time. And my excitement about what is happening is we're starting to see some agitation. We've been working very closely with a bunch of incredible organisations who work in the sector around progressing equality, specifically focused on masculinity, um, who have been agitating for some change for, for quite a while now. And you know, what we're seeing now is the, the government's put forward a, a multi-year strategy uh, for about 10 years to around the prevention of violence against women and looking at a number of uh, initiatives that work across the sector from, as you mentioned, all the way from five years old, all the way through a, a systemic approach to, to policy, um, but also looking at key interventions that we can take place in group settings. So whether that's face-to-face formats in schools, sporting clubs, community groups, or online. And just to bring it into context, what we do at the Man Cave is work with, uh, we've worked with about 50,000 teenage boys now, and our whole model is um, supporting them to access their values, understand their emotions, um, develop help-seeking behaviours, uh, understand things like respect um, and accountability and also to play a role in, in creating a, a more fair and equal world. So, you know, we're excited to see some momentum in this space and my hope is this is a very successful trial that can see, you know, more things, uh, more money uh, invested into the sector. And all of those things that you've just mentioned, I guess, are the definition of what people would say is healthy masculinity. People do have a really strong reaction sometimes, though, to the term toxic masculinity. They either stand by it, they hate it. What's your your take on on that term yeah there's no doubt it's a very divisive term i think um just for context uh, what you know when it is used the, the inherent uh, meaning behind it is not saying that all masculinity is toxic by any means. What it's um, identifying is that there are certain ideas or certain embodiments of uh, manliness that perpetuate things like domination at all costs, homophobia and hyper-aggression and ultimately what the, the research suggests and the research which has really been led from an Australian context around something called the man box which looks at certain attitudes and behaviours that uh, men live uh, culturally inherit and then subsequently police other men to live by, um, things like what I mentioned before around domination at all costs, homophobia, emotional repression, hyperaggression, men who live inside of what they call this man box are much significantly more likely to cause harm to themselves and ultimately harm to others. And, you know, what we really need to do is start to think about how we go preventative with this. So much funding in this sector goes to crisis management, which is absolutely important, but we have to go to more upstream and where this really begins is investing in, uh, particularly in young men as they're forming their belief systems around the world, their attitudes, their behaviours, and ultimately working with the ecosystems around them. So whether it's new parents, whether it's sporting clubs, or, or those that really influence uh, the behaviours of young men. And obviously a huge part of that, which I know we've talked about before, is uh, the role that viral influencers can play, uh, such as Andrew Tate, who effectively affirm a certain type of uh, hyper-masculine existence um, that really has garnered incredible support from uh, hundreds of thousands of teenage boys across the world who really see him as a role model who's speaking the truth, saying what they wish they could say and living a lifestyle that is uh, very appealing to a certain teenage boy uh, psyche. Uh, and the worry for that is we're now starting to see uh, the gateway that he is bringing 
to these young men into more extremist beliefs around, you know, again, homophobia, very misogynistic behaviour, um, and ultimately not, you know, living the values that I think we, particularly in Australian context, call as uh, what we underpin as being a, a good man, a healthy, respectful, good man. I was going to ask about Andrew Tate because even though he wasn't mentioned by name in the government's press release regarding this announcement of this trial, it was very clear that uh, they were referencing people like him uh, with a big influence. Are you finding in your work and your talk with boys, young guys at school, um, Hunter, that he's still a huge influence and it's still a really big problem? Yeah, so we recently surveyed about 500 boys just to kind of really hear it from from then because I think in modern society, a lot is talked about on behalf of young men that we very rarely invite their voice to the table. And it was really interesting to say that, you know, 92% of these 500 boys knew who he was. About 28% of them said that they look up to Andrew Tate and about 36% of them say they found him relatable. Um, and what we saw is in particular schools and parents were really struggling with the impact that he's had on uh, these young men. And just to, you know, anecdotally share some of the things that these young men love about him is they say, you know, he's confident, he speaks his mind, which is actually refreshing. Um, he's saying what everyone said is thinking deep down. He's got a lifestyle that most kids aspire to. He's a role model for masculinity. Um, his positive messages outweigh the bad. Um, and we recognize that we shouldn't identify with what he says about women, but um, he's the best role model we've got at the moment, which I think is just really interesting because for me, it just represents that there is this huge void for, you know, diverse male role models to, to fill uh, in these young men's lives. And my major, major concern about this is kind of really twofold. One is that we have social media fueling these teenage boys' psychology. We know that young people are spending more and more time on the internet than ever before. We have the smartest minds in the world working on hijacking our attention. And what we see is, you know, the algorithm um, really keeps feeding what people are watching. And, and we see that really become the gateway into more extremist beliefs. And the second thing that I think is a major concern is the role of pornography in all of this. We know that, you know, young people accessing porn earlier and earlier, and ultimately it's starting to shape their, uh, again, their belief systems around how intimacy and respect is conducted in, in an intimate setting. So my, my whole thing about this is we have to start putting more pressure, not just on the government, but on these big tech giants and the pornography industry um, to start thinking about the public health issues that we're going to start to see later down the track. Because I think we're now getting to this point where the, we're really seeing the cost. If we don't have interventions now, we're going to be paying for this as a major, major public health issue. Um, and not even the, the near, oh, sorry, the distant future and the near future. Mm, this is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Hunter Johnson from The Man Cave about the federal government's announcement that they want to be doing more to uh, really um, uh, promote positive masculinity and crack down on toxic masculinity. Hunter, in your work, you're talking to a lot of guys, a lot of uh, boys at school. Do you find that they really do want to open up and talk about relationships and those sorts of things? Or is it as we're always told, oh, nobody wants to talk about anything? Yeah, so it's pretty profound the fact that we've now worked with about 50,000 teenage boys through our programs and 95% uh, of those boys 
really recommend the program to their mates. They talk about it's made a profound impact on their lives. We have boys coming back now saying, you know, I was seeing a psychologist for five years and I finally got more out of this program because I finally realized I wasn't alone, you know. And so we're now starting to see this narrative that boys and men don't talk is is a myth. And we actually know from substantial experience and time in the ring that when created environments of psychological safety, when they're surrounded by an environment that uses language that's accessible to them and there's space for them to have the messy and sometimes politically incorrect conversations, it opens up the space to have a deeper conversation around their value system, around what's important to them, around what are the the hopes and dreams and goals they have in their life, but also what are the behaviours that they can actually start to look at and start to evolve out of. And it's a very, very different way to engage with, you know, teenagers where, where, you know, the traditional model is, you know, don't be seen as a kid or um, young men are a problem to be solved. And what I really want to make clear as well through through our work is this isn't about throwing away our favorite masculine traits. You know, there are so many incredible things about the masculine um, identity and experience. This is about uh, creating more range in our personalities and our identity so that some days we can be open and, and vulnerable and ask for support. But the other day we may need to be stoic and strong and, and hold ourselves together. And this, you know, again, the language we use, this has to start young and we have to start practicing this with role models that are diverse and intersectional, that young men feel like they represent and they want to learn from because we know when they're aged 12 to 16, they'll statistically break away from their parents and seek mentoring and guidance elsewhere. They'll test their boundaries. They'll test their invincibility. And ultimately, that's where the rite of passage used to come in and still does for many cultures. But now we don't have this mainstream rite of passage to initiate young men into the next stage of their adulthood. They're seeking thrill-seeking behaviours elsewhere or they're being drawn to influences who are not necessarily conducive of, you know, again, what we know to be a, a good, respectful, healthy man. It's so interesting. And the conversation has got people talking on the text line, really backing up a lot of the things you're saying, Hunter. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Hunter Johnson, CEO of The Man Cave, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.